Good morning, hello. Today we are exploring some possible answers to four different assessment questions. My name is Victoria Bowler, and this is episode 48 of Elemental Conversations. In the last several days, I have had several conversations about assessment that I think are really interesting. This topic, this topic of active embedded assessment in elementary general music is one of my very favorite topics to talk about. And that is for two main reasons. The first one is just, I like things that work. (laughs) I like teaching in a way that actually works, that actually drives learning forward. And we cannot have that forward motion in our teaching without assessment. So since the whole point of being an elementary general music teacher is to watch the musical and personal development of elementary general musicians, we are going to need some sort of way to ensure that that learning actually takes place. And that is assessment. That kind of leads into the second reason I love this topic, and it is because I think it is a topic that is commonly misunderstood, uh, commonly misconstrued, and maybe miscommunicated to some extent. So we can talk about, in this conversation, we can talk about assessments in the real world, not the assessments that we take for our grad or undergraduate professors or the assessments that we take for our principals or for report cards or anything like that. When we get to have this conversation about assessment, we get to go down to the actual purpose, what assessment actually is, not all of the things that we need to check off for a, you know, elementary methods class or for our administration. This episode today was actually supposed to be about using recorders in elementary general music curriculum, but uh, like I said, I kept having these interactions with colleagues about the topic of assessment. So I put it to a vote on stories and the majority of preference was with assessment. And so here we are. Uh, That said, we will talk about recorders in the curriculum next episode. So if you have anything specific that you would like to talk about, listen about anything like that, um, you can certainly drop me a note on Instagram at Victoria Bowler, or you can go to the show notes and find a form that you can fill out to ask a podcast question. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about assessment questions, and then I have a whole course about assessment. If you are interested, uh, if this is a topic that you find, uh, is useful, then it is entirely possible. You would also enjoy that course. It's something that I'm very proud of because I worked very hard on it. And in my opinion, I think that it bridges some gaps very nicely between assessment training in like teacher training courses and what we know assessments look like in real life. And I do believe that there can be a gap between those two understandings. So um, the underlying foundations of all of these questions we'll talk about today are addressed in the course. And then the very last thing I'll say, this is not going to be just one giant pitch for the course, but I will say at the very end, uh, there are some changes that I'm making to that active embedded assessment course. And one of those changes is a change in the price point. So right now it is $99 and it is going to $49. So if you stick around to the end, I will go ahead and give you that code for a $49 purchase uh, because while it is on my list of things to do, it has not yet made 
made it to the top of my list, that reformatting and repricing of that course. So I will give you that discount at the end in case this is something you are interested in. And then the last housekeeping item here is I know that a lot of friends listening have already purchased it. So we will talk about that scenario at the very end as well. All right. We are talking about grading young musicians. Mm, interesting. We are talking about assessment and student motivation. We are talking about assessing active music making, and we are about, uh, talking about assessing effort. Okay. Let's jump in starting with grading young musicians. This was from a colleague on Instagram. She said, I hate grades so much, especially for first grade, and especially when so much of their progress is dependent on their development. I wish we didn't have to give grades for the littles. What are your thoughts? This is something that I think a lot of people can identify with. We know from our work in the classroom that student development happens progressively. It happens over time. And so when we assign a grade to this tiny snapshot of a student's life and we say, this is your summative evaluation of your musicianship, that feels so counterintuitive to what we want our music classes to be right? We want our music classes to be places where young musicians can play and they can interact with each other and they can make mistakes. So what is this relationship between our love of the learning process, our love of making a safe environment where students can make mistakes? And on the other hand, this obligation for some of us, this obligation to take some sort of scoring of student performance. One of the things that will be helpful when we have this conversation is to make sure that we have a distinct line, a starting point and an ending point to three assessment concepts that are interconnected, but not the same thing. The first one is assessments. Those are separate from grades and the assessment is also separate from a documented score of that data. So assessments are how we know what students need from us. Sometimes those assessments are documented. They might be documented with quantitative data or with qualitative data. And perhaps we can talk more about that later. We have the assessment, we have the documentation of the assessment, and sometimes that is taken as a grade. What we're talking about here in this question is specifically grading. But before we jump in, I do want to make sure that there is a clear line of distinction. Assessments are not necessarily grades. Assessments are not necessarily documented. I completely agree with the opinion of this question. Uh, so much of student progress is dependent on their development, and that can make it tricky to assign grades for young musical learners. In this case, first grade. Okay, let me flip this question a little bit. I have a follow-up question to the question. I have several follow-up questions to the question. My first question, what if grades are not the problem? What if grades are not the problem here? What if it is the meaning that we give to grades that is the problem? What if we make grades mean more than they actually mean? What if we are adding a weight, an emotional weight to a grade that perhaps doesn't belong there? And what if we could reframe grades to be a more realistic picture of what they can actually tell us? So a grade is a documented quantitative score. 
quantitative data that show achievement. And normally when we document a grade, again, separate from documenting an assessment, that is normally documented for the sake of a report card or an administrator or something like that. The objective of a grade is to show, I'm going to use that word objective again, but differently is to show um, an objective score of achievement. Objective score hopefully means that there is no question. Uh, let's take the example of a steady beat. The student is keeping a steady beat and anyone evaluating that student on their steady beat performance can see that yes, they are in fact keeping a steady beat. That is an objective score that we might document for a grade. So in that case, it would be an objective grade of student steady beat performance. Now, that final grade, and this is where the, the tension is that we feel, that final grade cannot show us how hard the student was trying to keep that steady beat. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about grading for effort. Um, we cannot show in that assessment score, let's say it's a three, uh, we cannot show with that three how much the student enjoys music or the extent to which they light up the room when they walk in or how much development, how much growth in that steady beat performance or singing voice performance, how much growth they have shown since the beginning of the year. That number is just a three. All it shows is a three. So let's pause there and notice that perhaps we are confused about the role of that three. If all that three shows is a student's performance of a steady beat, and if we know that it cannot tell us, it has no way to tell us because it is quantitative data, it has no way to show us how much the student enjoys music, it has no way to show how students have progressed over time, and it has no way to show how the student is engaging in other musical concepts that might be interconnected to that steady beat performance. Another thing that becomes tricky is if we are using, you know, in the case of a report card, if we are being asked to uh, average out student performance from the entire year, then we know that a poor performance of steady beat at the beginning of the year, which by the way, we would expect to see that is developmentally appropriate. It's developmentally appropriate for students to start with an inconsistent steady beat or a steady beat more, uh, more likely we see a steady beat that does not match the tempo of the music we are singing in class. We would expect that at the beginning of the kindergarten year and for some students at the beginning of the first grade year. And we also know from our time in the classroom that there will be some second grade students, especially this year, especially this year. We will have some second grade students that have not yet developed that skill of beat keeping at the consistent tempo of the rest of the class. So if we know that we can expect to see some low scores at the beginning of the year and some higher scores at the at the end of the year, and then we're being asked to average out those scores. Well, we know that that final grade that we give a student on the report card is not going to be a reflection of their current skill. Those earlier scores are going to bring that grade down. And so obviously that feels super unfair to us. 
This is one of the advantages to standards-based grading. And so if you are in a situation where you are being asked to give a final score for your students uh, that is intended to be documented evidence of their entire musical achievement, this is a question that you would want to ask your administrator. How do I get this final score? This is something that you might look around your staff meeting and think to yourself, wow, everyone else already knows the answer to this question, and I don't. But that is not your fault. It's not your fault that you don't know the expectation for how to gather that information and package it on the report card. So all you have to do is ask. You say, just for clarification. I will also add a spoiler alert that in my experience, most principals just want you to give students a good grade in music, and that is kind of all they care about. So I would not be too concerned that your principal is going to expect you to have a very involved process of showing evidence. In some cases, yes, that will be the case. And if you like flunk a kid in first grade music, you will probably have some follow-up questions to answer. But in most cases, principals just want to see that kids are having a good time in music. And that's basically the extent to which they care about your grades. Let me go back to one of the questions that I was asking earlier. What if there is not a problem with grades? What if it is not a problem to grade first graders on their musicianship? What if the problem is that we are assigning an emotional weight to a grade that doesn't need to be there? What if the problem is that we are scared of bad grades because we think they might indicate things that they do not indicate? So it can be true that a student does not keep a steady beat. That can be objectively true. And it can also be true that their unsteady beat does not say a single thing about their musicianship development. They could be totally on track and have a low grade for beat keeping. Those things are not mutually exclusive. We also know that they can have a poor grade on a steady beat assessment, and that does not have any bearing on their value as a human or how much we love having them in our music class. All that grade means is that they do not show the musical behavior of keeping a steady beat. That's it. When we assign more weight to that than the quantitative data can show, we are doing our students a disservice. Let me expound on that because I think sometimes we view the disservice of our students. We view it as if we take grades for their musical achievement, that is a disservice to the overall learning process. And yes, maybe it depends on how we are taking grades. It depends on uh, what that environment looks like. But I want to talk about a podcast called Good Inside, and it is with Dr. Becky Kennedy. She has a parenting podcast, and I am not a parent, but I do love listening to parenting podcasts and reading the work of other uh, PhD researchers and uh, child development experts, because while I am not in a parenting role, all of us are in a guardianship role as teachers. Right. So her question to this, and again, uh, she was not talking about grades, <laughs> but she said, what if our jobs as parents are not to make kids feel happy all the time? What if happiness is not our goal? What if instead of happiness, we want to teach resilience to our students? And I think that framing is helpful when it comes to this question of assessments and grades and documentation for young musicians. 
What if our jobs are not to make our students feel happy and content in their musicianship? What if our jobs are to teach students how to learn? So go with me on this. When we avoid data that drive learning forward, we are sending the message that there is something to fear in a bad assessment outcome or in a bad grade. We are sending the message that it is bad to have a bad grade. What if it's not bad to have a bad grade? What if that is just information? What if that three is just a three and it has nothing to do with your value as a human? If we are so scared of talking to students about the process to become better beat keepers or pitch matchers or expressive movers, if we are too scared to have that conversation because we are afraid of what it will do to students' self-efficacy, that does our students a disservice. And we know this as teachers on an intuitive level, because when we say, all right, let's sing and play the game to bow, wow, wow, we do not say one, two, here we go. And then close our eyes and close our ears and go, la, 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 la. I can't hear you. I can't see you. La, 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 la. I'm not getting any data of your performance. La, 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 la. No, we have our eyes open. We have our ears open to listen to students because we know that part of the learning process is that we are going to redirect their musical behavior when we see fit. So with all that said, if it were up to me personally, just Victoria Bowler as a human, I would not assign a grade to a first grade music report card. But that said, I don't have a problem with giving a kindergartner or a first grader a grade for music. And that is because I have a clear picture of what that grade can tell me, which is in the grand scheme of things, not that much. Grades don't tell us that much, which is why I don't have a problem assigning a grade <laughs> because I am not confused about what a grade can and cannot show. That grade, that quantitative picture, that is a tiny snapshot of overall musicianship. It's a tiny snapshot of student achievement. And so I can view it for what it is. It's a tiny freeze frame. It is not the whole movie. As the teacher, I see the whole movie. And I have other assessment data that are much better suited to show the whole movie. One last point to drive this home. Uh, this is very similar in my mind to other quantitative measurements of success that actually don't show that much. <laughs> and one of the most common ones that we talk about in our everyday lives, depending on what kind of everyday life you have, <laughs> is this idea of the number on the scale. If, if there is someone who is trying to be healthy, the number on the scale is a very poor reflection of your overall health. So because of that, if someone is trying to be healthy, they will not be very concerned with what the number on the scale says, because they understand that that number on the scale gives a very limited set of information about overall health. That number on the scale cannot tell us how happy we are, how emotionally regulated we are, how much sleep we are getting, how much energy we have at three o'clock in the afternoon, all of that stuff. It's just a number on the scale. But for some people, we make that number on the scale have an emotional weight that it has no business carrying. 
And it's because we are assigning an emotional outcome to that number in the same way that for some of us, and my hand is raised because I have been here for some of us, we have this fear of a bad assessment score of a bad musical grade, but that is because we give grades weight that they have no business carrying. All right. I know that was a long-winded answer. I hope you're still with me. Uh, my Just to summarize my perspective on this question, I do not have a problem giving grades to first graders because I know grades do not actually give us that much information. Let's move on to the second question. This is about assessment and student motivation, assessment and student confidence. Uh, this is a colleague on Instagram who, when I said I was going to do the assessment podcast today, they said, could you please speak about how to keep student motivation and confidence regardless of the assessment outcome? This is another question that I know so many of us ask ourselves, and it goes back to this view of what assessments are and what they are not. So again, just as a refresher, assessments are not necessarily grades, although sometimes we might take an assessment for a grade. Sometimes assessments are documented, and sometimes that documentation is qualitative, sometimes it is quantitative, and sometimes those qualitative data might be taken as a grade. But the assessment is not necessarily the grade. And the assessment happens, can happen, independent of the documentation of the assessment. All right, with all of that said, uh, this set of follow-up questions, I'm just going to breeze through them. Uh, when we talk about helping students keep motivation and confidence, regardless of the assessment outcome, I have a lot of follow-up questions. Ready? Here we go. Uh, do you tell students when they're being assessed? Hmm. What is the role of self-assessment? How often do assessments take place? What is the emotional meaning we give assessments in the classroom? Who are assessments for? Are we using grades as a leverage for good behavior and a musical motivation? And last one, is a grade the only way or the primary way that students, parents, and administration see the progress of learning? Just for fun, I will start at the bottom of my list of questions and work my way back up. So let's talk about this last, uh, this last question about the progression of learning is a grade, the primary way, or for some of us, the only way that students and parents and administrators see the progress of learning. If the answer is yes, that is a great opportunity to expand the amount of information we are sending home to parents, or we are sending outside the classroom to, uh, to classroom teachers. If you and I are friends, you probably already know about my love for the informants model. So let me talk about that just very, very briefly. What if we could show little, uh, little images, little snapshots of the learning progression that is happening inside the music classroom? What if we could show the process of learning instead of always talking about this outcome, an outcome for a performance, uh, for, you know, a musical performance probably looks like a concert. And then the outcome for an assessment probably for a lot of us looks like a final report card grade. But if that is not in alignment with our philosophy of education, then what can we do to show our philosophy of education? If we do not think that grades are a great view of student musicianship, then what are we doing to communicate what is a good picture of student musicianship? 
One very simple way to get started with this informants model, or rather this progression of showing the learning process, if you are not ready to do an informants, no problem. I recommend after you have written permission from every guardian and every administrative person who matters, um, after you have that written permission, I recommend taking videos of students singing and moving and playing games and playing instruments and interacting with each other and improvising and and composing and doing all of the learning tasks that we do in a typical music class. I recommend taking a, you know, two, three minute video of students singing and playing the game to Bow Wow Wow, and then uploading that on Seesaw or on Schoology or your, um, your school website or whatever it is. So you have this video of Bow Wow Wow, and underneath it, you say, here is what we're learning in music class. This is what to listen for as students are singing and playing the game to Bow Wow Wow. Let me show you, parents, let me show you with a video where our learning process starts, and that is games. That is play-based activities. And then from there, every time you build on a skill or a musical concept with Bow Wow Wow or another song that meets that criteria for your musical learning, what if every time you build on that skill, you take a two-minute video or a 30-second video or a picture of students in rest position or playing position or whatever it is, whatever it is you are doing in your classroom, what if you documented student learning along the way and put that on Seesaw or your website, whatever it is. What if you did that with a quick little blurb about the uh, national standard that students are meeting and the musical concept that they are working on and the musical skill that is developing and a list of things for parents to look for and watch for? And what if those kinds of data were to replace or be a nice addition to the quantitative data that you are documenting as a grade. All right, that is my perspective on this last question about communicating the process of learning and wondering if there is a better way to show it than with grades. Next, uh, are we using grades as a leverage for good behavior and musical motivation? Is the reason we are expecting students to do well in music class? Is it from the threat of a grade? Grades are definitely a very good way. The threat of a bad grade is definitely a very good way for some students to meet our expectation. But if the threat of a grade is our primary behavior strategy, then it's probably time to reevaluate. There's a lot more we could go into, but that's not really the purpose of today's conversation. So I want to pause on that follow-up question. The next one I asked was, who are assessments for? Assessments are just how we know what students need next. So I don't need to be concerned that an assessment is going to stop learning. When I do assessments correctly, when I do assessments effectively, they drive learning forward. If an assessment makes a student shut down or lose confidence or lose motivation, that might be an indication that I need to reevaluate how assessments are presented. And we'll talk more about that in some of these other questions. The next one on our list is what is the emotional meaning that we give to assessments in the classroom? And obviously we've talked about that a lot already today, but if, if a student views an assessment as a big, scary thing, then yes, there is a lot at stake when I do my solo singing or when I do my ostinato pattern, right? There's a lot of weight. There's a lot of things that I am risking when I do this performance 
performance assessment. But if an assessment is just how I can help my teacher do better, that changes the game. Assessments have much more to do with us than we than we might think. Assessments have a lot to do with us as the teacher rather than putting everything on the student all the time. The student's job is to teach us what they need from us next. So if we can change our perception of assessment, that can go a really long way. Assessments are an embedded part of the learning process, which leads to the next question. How often do assessments take place? Assessments take place every single class because we need to know what students need next. Again, with that bow wow wow example, we do not say, okay, sing and play the game to bow wow wow. And as soon as students start, we close our eyes, we close our ears and we go, la 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 la, I can't hear you, I can't see you, la 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 la, I don't, I don't allow any assessment data to enter my brain. That's not how we teach, right? So assessments take place every single class. Assessments are another part. They are a naturally embedded part of singing and playing and speaking and moving. When assessments are viewed as a natural part of the learning progression, they do not have the big, hairy, scary, uh, I keep using this word weight, but there is, there is like a heaviness that students can feel in the classroom and there's a heaviness that we can feel as a teacher. I was giving a workshop uh, a few days ago and someone commented, uh, I am such a nicer teacher when I am not concerned about assessments. Yes, <laughs> that is because we make assessments feel so heavy. They bog us down. But if they are a natural part of the learning process that take place every single class, whether or not, and again, I need to make this distinction, the assessment is independent of the documentation and the documentation is independent of a grade. Sometimes, I'm going to say it again, sometimes we take an assessment, we document it, and we use it as a grade. But sometimes we take an assessment, we document it, and it is not a grade. When assessments are a regular part of class, there is not a big motivation push or a big lack of confidence flop uh, at a bad assessment grade. Some of that is uh, tied into the next question. What is the role of self-assessment? My suggestion is that we adjust our view of assessment to be more of a collaborative process. It is not a linear, uh, a linear progression of the teacher assigns an activity, the student does the activity. That's not it at all. It is the students give us information. We use it as a way to create a new experience. And then we watch our students in that new experience. They give us information and we use it moving forward. That is a collaborative process. The other piece of that collaboration can absolutely be student assessment, students assessing themselves. Students can absolutely take ownership of their own learning and they can make their own observations. They can make their own observations about their beat keeping or their pitch accuracy or uh, their ensemble performance, anything like that. Any assessment that we give students, it is worth considering whether the student input on their learning could be beneficial to the assessment process. In most cases, yes. Students can make their own observations and guess what? They can come up with their own solutions. So again, if assessments are collaborative and we are combining 
teacher data with student self-assessment or student ensemble assessment, that changes the role of assessment. It drives it much more into this category of assessments move learning forward and further away from this high stakes grades-based environment that can really truly lead to a loss of motivation and a loss of confidence, depending on, again, depending on how they are presented. All of this leads me to the very last question. Do you tell students when they are being assessed? My answer here would cause some eyebrows to be raised by some people, and I welcome those raised eyebrows. <laughs> I'm here for this conversation. My answer is, sure, let's absolutely tell students when they are being assessed. And also, nah, they don't really need to know because all they need to know is that they are doing the very best they can to sing Bow Wow Wow. And this goes back to our distinction between assessments and grades and our definition of assessment and the weight that we give grades. If for some reason on, you know, I don't know, on some planet, if my administrator was saying, hey, Victoria, uh, students solo singing of Bow Wow Wow is now going to become their summative evaluation of their entire music score. I would probably tell students ahead of time. But again, I would not be confused that that grade has any bearing on their overall musicianship. Okay, to summarize my thoughts on this question, the, the very, very last piece is my goal as an educator is to teach students how to learn. And so if I present assessments as one of the ways we learn how to learn, that changes the whole entire game, at least in my opinion. Let's move on to the next question, uh, which is assessing active music making. And by the way, this question of do you tell students when they are being assessed, that is word for word one of the questions that we answer in the Q&A portion, like the bonus section of the assessment course. This question, assessing active music making, this is the entire course. <laughs> so I'm going to give a, a brief answer here because obviously I'm not going to go into the entirety of the course content. Here's the quick Cliff Notes answer to this question. And by the way, the actual question is, uh, can you talk about organizing assessments and strategies for active music making, strategies for assessing active music making? Here is my follow-up question to the question. <laughs> is it possible that we're making this harder than it is? Is it possible that assessments and documentation of assessments could be simpler than we make it? I'm not sure, but that is a great thing to get curious about. Is it possible that we are making things more difficult for ourselves in terms of documentation? Because again, I want to say um, over and over and over, the assessment happens independently of the documentation. I'm a huge fan of documenting assessment data. I love documenting assessment data. And I have clarity on uh, the documentation of the assessment is not the assessment. The activity is the assessment. The active musical experience is the assessment. And then sometimes we choose to document it or sometimes not. Certainly pros and cons to both. Again, I want to say that I am a huge fan of documenting assessments. So uh, again, the, uh, the Cliff Notes version of this is we're going to start with an observable outcome, something that we can clearly see and hear. 
let's keep moving with this bow wow wow example because it's been with us this whole episode. Uh, let's say that our observable outcome is the student sings mi re do in the context of a singing game. And we might even say in the context of the singing game, bow wow wow. Okay, is that something that I can clearly see? Eh, no, I can't. I can't really see you match pitch. Can I hear you match pitch? Yes. Okay, great. So now I have my observable outcome and now I need to gather evidence of your uh, performance in relation to my observable outcome. Great. Well, if I'm in the room, when you sing me Ray Do in the context of a singing game, parentheses, bow, wow, wow, that's it. I have my observable outcome. I hopefully have a rubric that I'm using and I am in the room when the assessment takes place. I'm in the room when you sing me Ray Do in the context of a singing game. The activity is the assessment. Now, this leads to a follow-up question about the documentation of data. And that is a different question. So let's dive into that very quickly. Uh, I mentioned a rubric. I am a very big advocate of using a rubric. Something else that I need to, I need to pause in my brain and mention this right now. Uh, did you notice that in the outcome and in the rubric, I said that you were matching pitch in the context of a singing game? That's important. I specified the context. If I had said you sing Bow Wow Wow as a solo in front of the entire class while the entire class is silent, that would be a different assessment. And that would be a different process than what I'm talking about here. But for the example that I used, you match pitch me Ray Do in the context of a singing game, parentheses, Bow Wow Wow. Let's talk about the documentation. One of my favorite strategies for active data collection is floating. So let's keep, again, let's keep that example. Keep it rocking and rolling. Students are singing and playing the game to bow wow wow. And then as students play the game, I can just be standing in the room, walking around the room, listening to you sing me Ray Do accurately within the context of a singing game, parentheses, bow wow wow. The validity and the reliability of this assessment context is absolutely present. And again, it has to do with the objective for that day or the objective for this lesson segment. If I want to know if you are going to match pitch in this context, one of the nice things about a game like Bow Wow Wow is that you, we can just keep going, right? We just keep going and going and going and going and going. And so that lets me know that as I am listening to students, if I hear someone Bow Wow Wow, whose dog art thou? Little Tommy Tucker's dog Bow Wow Wow. If that is what I hear on the other side of the room, my ears can pick up on that and I can start to investigate um, as I am listening to other students match pitch and other students be a little bit below the actual pitch, but still keeping the melodic contour. This is an example of something that gives me lots of opportunities to, to hear people singing the song over and over and over and over and over and over and over. There's a lot more I could say about this, but I do want to pause it here because looking at my timestamp, I have been yakking about assessment for a long time, which is not surprising because again, I love this topic. Let's wrap up with this question about assessing effort. The question is, uh, why don't you recommend giving a grade for effort? This is a very interesting question. This is something that came up, this, this conversation about assessing effort came up in my most recent workshop that was about the review and assessment process at the beginning of the year. When we assess effort, we get into this super sticky territory of assigning a motivation to a behavior. 
Do you remember that when I said uh, we are making our rubric, we are making our assessment objective? Do you remember I said it needs to be something that I can hear or see? Your motivation, the extent to which you are trying your best, that is not something that I can see. That is not something that I can hear. I don't know what's going on in your brain. So how do we know, how would we know the amount of effort someone is giving? How do we know if they were, quote, even trying or if they uh, are doing their best? The only way for us to know is to ask. We can ask students and then we will use their self-reported data. This is very, very easy to do. A self-assessment of, I did my very best today. And maybe that's a thumbs up, thumbs down. Maybe that's on a scale of one to four. Totally, totally up to you how you want to play that. Uh, so there's the assessment of, the self-assessment of, I did my very best today. And then there's also that piece of student self-assessment that we talked about earlier. That absolutely plays a role in this. So let's talk about this effort and what I mean about not being able to assign someone a motivation. All we can do is see their action. I have no idea what led you to take that action unless I ask. And if I ask, I have to take your self-reported data. I cannot give you those self-reported data. Let's imagine for the sake of this question that um, I really hate it when my husband leaves out the dishes, when he makes a snack and then he leaves the kitchen dirty. Now, just pause. This is not a point of contention in my marriage, but let's imagine that that is something that happens and it really irks me. So I get home from a long day and Nathan has made himself a snack in the kitchen and he has left the kitchen dirty. I might say, Nathan knows I care about this. Nathan knows this bugs me. He knows this drives me crazy and he still did it. He obviously, looking at this mess in the kitchen, he didn't even try to pick it up and he knew I was coming home. Nathan must not respect me. He must not care about what I appreciate about our home. He must not care about my feelings. He must have a total disregard for me as a person. All of this is assigning a motivation to an action. I have no idea what Nathan's motivation was when he left the dishes on the counter. All I can see is the dishes on the counter. When I assign Nathan a motivation, and again, I want to stress again, this is not, this is not a real life example, but when I assign Nathan a motivation for leaving the dishes out on the counter, I have no idea the amount of effort that he might have put in to cleaning it up. I am not allowing for any possibility at all that he started to clean up and then got an emergency phone call from his, I don't know, from his mom, or that he got an emergency email from work and he had to leave right then and go take care of something else. Something else may have jumped to the top of his priority list. And it might've been something that if I would just take a second and pause between the information I see and the motivation I assign, if I were to just pause for one moment, I might completely agree that he made the right decision given the information that he had to not clean the kitchen. All right, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back to, to elementary general music. When I see a student staring out the window and not singing and not keeping a steady beat, I might say they're not even trying. But guess what? I have no idea the amount of effort that that student is putting in to just sitting in the room with the rest of the students there. 
I have no way to measure the amount of effort that that student is going through just to sit in the class at school, just to not get up and run out of the room or to um, not follow their curiosity and go wander over to the wall and, you know, pick up the stuff on the bulletin board. I don't know the amount of effort and the amount of resistance that that student is getting. Okay, so does that student have um, medication that they were not given that day? Was that student just in a really intense conversation in the hallway before they got to music? Are they looking forward to something at recess? What is the effort that they are given, that they are giving, and the resistance that they are being met with that is happening in that room? I have no idea. All I see is that they are not keeping a steady beat. We don't know how much effort that student is giving and what obstacles to their external performance they are working through. Even though something seems very simple to us as an adult, we have to remember that our student musicians are not just shorter adult musicians. (laughs) There is a very specific set of developmental challenges that they work through every single day. And it's possible that sometimes we might take them for granted, those challenges that students have um, from a developmental standpoint. We don't know the amount of effort they are giving just to work through what is developmentally appropriate for their age. When I assign someone a motivation, when I assign them effort based on the performance that I see, I am suggesting that I have a level of omnipotence that I clearly do not have. I have no way to know what a student's effort level is. I can only see that they are keeping a steady beat or not keeping a steady beat. But again, I am not confusing that assessment outcome with a value on the student themselves. All right, friends, that is where we are going to wrap it up for today. This has uh, ended up being a little bit longer than I had anticipated. Um, But again, it's because it's a subject that I care a lot about. Let's talk about that assessment discount code because, like I said, this is all stuff that we talk about inside the assessment course. I mentioned earlier that there are some changes to the course that I'm going to make in the next month, and part of those changes are uh, lowering the price. So if you have already purchased the assessment course at the original price point in the past, do not worry. I have gifts coming your way. I have your email um, that you signed up for the course with. So I have some gifts coming your way that will make up for uh, this assessment price. Friends, if you are interested in this course um, and you have not yet taken it, you can use the discount code Victoria Bowler Assessment, all lowercase Victoria Bowler Assessment, and that will take the price point from its current 99 to the new 49. Here's the big uh, bookends of this conversation. Assessments are how we know what students need from us next. When we start to view assessments as how we learn from our students instead of how students perform for a grade, that really shifts the mindset that we have. It shifts the tone of the classroom and it allows us to make data-driven decisions in a way that is still active and play-based and musical and student-centered. 